Death Said Press presents Hot Iron and Cold Blood, an anthology of the Weird West. In these pages, you'll find stories by Joe R. Lansdale, Owl Goenbeck, Edward Lee, Ronald Kelly, Bree Morgan, Jeff Strand, Kenzie Jennings, Patrick R. McDonough, Brennan LaFaro, Jill Girardi, L. M. Labat, and more. Open window for submissions ends May 15th, 2022. For more details, go to deathsheadpress.com. The story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes. When every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were. Only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does. And it won't stop. Not until you come home. Back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming of age story. Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys and A Place for Sinners. Out now. From the host of This Is Horror Podcast comes a dark thriller of obsession, paranoia, and voyeurism. After relocating to a small coastal town, Brian discovers a hole that gazes into his neighbor's bedroom. Every night she dances and he peeps. Same song, same time, same wild and mesmerizing dance. But soon Brian suspects he's not the only one watching and she's not the only one being watched. They're watching as the Wicker Man meets Body Double with a splash of Suspiria. They're Watching by Michael David Wilson and Bob Pastorella is available from thisishorror.co.uk, Amazon, and wherever good books are sold. Hey, before we uh, before we hit go, um, and welcome to Deadheads. <laughs> Good fucking lord! Welcome to Deadhead Space. I'm your host Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host Bren Lafaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we are with the author of Almost Ruth, Criterium, and a few more excellent books. Tyler Jones. Say hi, Tyler. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. You're always dressed so nice. Like you and Allerman and a few others, you guys just dress phenomenal. I, I got to take notes. Look, I got a local brewery from Jersey, and I don't even drink beer anymore. I'm a you bum. You're your classic. Yeah, I need, you know, that episode of The Office where it's like Class A and Jim Halpert's dressed in a suit. You know, I've never seen that show. Forget, Not one episode. Forget this reference. It yeah. doesn't matter. You're classy. What got you in horror? <laughs> <laughs> the office. 
<laughs> and good night. <laughs> no, but seriously, uh, well, I don't think uh, we've actually have we asked that before, Brennan, to him on a previous episode. No, and you know, for for anybody who's who's not intimately familiar with our backlist, Tyler, this is his fourth appearance. Uh, Tyler was on a panel for self-publishing. Uh, he was on an episode of kind of his own design. Uh, called Find the Torch, Burn the Plans, where uh, we talked about, uh, we had parents of special needs children um, who are also horror writers, and he was also a guest host for Philip Fricasi. Uh, but this is the first time that he has been on without having to give all the attention to other people. So yeah, we can ask him this question. Yeah, that makes me nervous now. I have no one else to... <laughs> to fill the empty space uh so is that an official question or is that just a joke are you uh, really asking me what got me into horror i just want to make sure man what if you call me out the on question stuff. i'm not sure no i'm kidding it's a it's a real question yeah what got you into horror <laughs> man i've always i've always been drawn to that stuff like i don't know that i could pinpoint a specific moment it's just always been what i was drawn to from the time i was a kid creepy creepy stuff i think um as far as like reading goes my interests have been varied i i love reading all kinds of stuff but that but i remember the specific feeling being a kid uh of reading a creepy book and i, I couldn't even tell you which one specifically but getting a different feeling from that book than i did from other books like when i was like eight nine years old man i loved the hardy boys books and some of those, maybe that was the start because some of those kind of veer into horror. It almost has that Scooby-Doo-esque kind of thing. Like, is something supernatural happening? And it never is in the Hardy Boys. But um, <laughs> I think that was probably it. Thinking I sometimes I wish that it was a supernatural um, explanation. And then later on, finding books where that was the case and thinking, that's it, man. That's where my heart is. It's so not that. a very exciting, exciting answer, but no, but I love hearing uh, that from a creator. We heard, um, I remember Rath James White was recently talking about how he started writing extreme horror. And he basically said that he looked at like the book covers and kind of imagined what would be inside. And it ended up being like much more horrific than what was actually in the books. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever read anything by him, you, you know, believe that in a heartbeat. And somebody else mentioned the same thing recently, uh, you know, looking at movie posters or, you know, reading books and saying, how would I handle this? Or, you know, what, wouldn't it be cool if, and I think that's just kind of almost kind of tantamount to being a creator is yeah. looking at and being inspired by what's come before and automatically going to that place in your mind where you put your own spin on it. So, yeah. you know, where is the first time that you start saying, I am going to put my own spin on it and creating stories? Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, it just, it made me think of, so when I was a kid, um, my dad lived down in Southern California in San Diego and I would go and visit during the summers and spend time with my two stepbrothers who were both older than me. And sometimes they would watch me. So we'd spend, you know, just days together, the three of us, and we would be given money for, you know, pizza and movies and things like that. And we go to the video store and they were into horror movies at the time, but they kind of had that 
big brother attitude, like we're trying to protect you, but also rub your face in the, in the fact that we can do things that you can't do. So they would like middle of the day, summer, Southern California, they'd lock themselves in a room and put on a horror movie and be like, you have to go do something else because you're too young for this. But they'd have the volume cranked up so I could hear what was <laughs> happening. I just couldn't see it. And so I am imagining things that, you know, are probably way worse than same kind of scenario as wrath that are way worse than, but I, I but I had seen the, the VHS cover and I knew <laughs> whatever was happening was not good. I could hear people screaming. And so my imagination like just went crazy. That's funny that, you know, Rich Duncan from uh Ink Heist podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was like that with Candyman. Um, Mark, uh, Mark Steensland was like that when his parents, his mother took him to a driving theater to see Rosemary's baby and he was in the back and uh, all he did was hear it. So that's, that's really interesting. That's just two, two, two examples. It's, um, you know, it's like what you don't see with your eyes, your brain fills in the, the rest of the picture. And mm-hmm. that's why that's kind of why books st- are the best. Yeah. I still prefer art like that. Mm. if it art that knows when to cut away from things whether it's a book or a film i always i always prefer that that it leaves some some space for imagination and i think for that comes so uh (laughs) that comes from being a kid when i was a kid um i was raised by a single mom for a number of years and sometimes she'd have to work long shifts and so she'd uh take me to the movie store and she was really protective and selective of what I could watch. So we had this video store not far from our house and she'd take me in there and say, okay, anything from that wall you can watch. And it was the classics wall. So for years, all I could watch were movies from 1940 to 1960. And that's how I got into Hitchcock and I watched all of Hitchcock's films and I fell in love with that kind of storytelling of, you know, he was brilliant in knowing when to pull away and allow the imagination to fill in those blanks, which of course, famously in Psycho, like you never see the knife pierce skin. And yet there were stories of people who wouldn't take showers after seeing that. Yeah. Same thing with Jaws. Jaws is a great example. We see so little of the shark, but we see it represented with like uh, the barrels, you know, moving across the the water. So we know it's there. We know the monsters under the water swimming, but we can't see it. And I, I love that that feeling of oh, it's there. I know it's there. I know its teeth are huge. Criterion does that really well. Um, you're so for those who haven't read it, it's really neat. Uh, Tyler, why don't you take me away with this? Take us away with the synopsis so I don't butcher it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, Criterium is about a young man named Zach whose um, dad has died after fighting the drug addiction, and Zach ends up fighting the same addiction himself. And he ends up stumbling across this really unusual bike that he thinks he can steal and sell for drug money. And once he gets on it, uh, he can't get off. You know, I come from this, I grew up in this town called Bridgewater, in Massachusetts. It's a, it's a nice little town. Uh, it's history is fascinating. Um, super quick. Uh, 1656 was when it was established. So we're talking about, uh, 
you know, a little bit of time before uh, the, the America, America was America. So anyways, um, there's a railroad track that runs through there as a regular train on schedule every day. And um, before I moved down to Jersey, there was this news report and it was this burnt victim, but they were wrapped in like some kind of plastic, but they, their entire body was burnt left by this railroad track. And it was strange. It was like some thought it was gang related. Some thought it was drug related, but there was another one that popped up uh, near the tracks later on. Um, and it just made me think of that. And uh, I, I don't know how I would react in either scenario, but the really neat thing is, is what you do with when he's on the bike describing all the pain and it, it's <laughs> the, your, your choice of words, like his brain stopped recording. I, I, I don't do this with every book, but I find myself doing this with Lansdale. I do this. I did this with your books out of red. Um, I go back to the pages and it ultimately slows down me reaching the end faster, but I get to enjoy a lot of parts that just the choice of words, like they might be simple words, but put together, I'm blown away. So Brennan, take, take us away with your thoughts, buddy. So in a lot of your work, you know, grief is a theme. You know, we see that we, <laughs> we see it a lot. And what interests me so much in Criterium is that idea. And you kind of covered it in the synopsis of somebody making a decision that is just I mean, or a series of decisions that leads to a life choice that's just so irrational because they've seen this destroy somebody's life and then they wind up down that same path. And again, on the surface, it sounds, it seems so absurd, but it's extremely commonplace. Um, so yeah. I, I wonder kind of where you got the impetus to explore that idea and criterion. Hmm. Being a dad is where it started. In fact, that book is um, dedicated to my youngest son. Uh, yeah, grief is grief is definitely a part of it. And obviously, addiction is a huge part of it as well. And I think it came from the the realization at some point, as a dad, when you when you look at when you look at your kids and realize, okay, you have my DNA in you. And it forced me anyway uh, to take a really good hard look at myself and the decisions that I make, the way I behave, the things I say. And I'm not, I'm not saying like I needed to stop robbing banks and killing people, but just looking at it, who I am. And uh, I mean, you guys know the first time you see your kid emulate something that you do or say something that maybe you shouldn't say and he repeats it. You're like, oh, geez, I know exactly where you got that from. Like you don't say that. Don't say that. But dad, you said that. I know I said it, but you shouldn't say it. Um, and, and really taking that and uh, this, this fear of, okay, well, what's in me that I need to confront? Uh, what, what dark things are in my heart, in the way I think, in the way I process things, in the way I look at people and judge them? Like even, even this, getting home from work. Say I'm telling my wife about how the day went. What words am I using to describe the people I work with? These are other human beings. I'm trying to teach my son to, to love and respect everyone. And am I saying, well, this idiot that I work with, 
So then is he thinking that, well, okay, so some people are idiots and it's okay to talk about them like that. Like it just made me really uh, do some self-reflection. And then I started thinking about that in the context of a story like addiction. Is addiction generational? Is it hereditary? Is it something that, you know, is it helpful to know, like, say your dad was an alcoholic? Is that something that you're going to have to fight against as you grow up and face the world and have your heart broken and things like that? So it really came from a point of fear of, uh, what kinds of things do we pass on to our kids without even knowing it, without even wanting to? And do they end up following in our footsteps uh, in ways that we don't want them to, even if we're gone? So that that began the start of it. So the start wasn't grief. It was fear of what kind of example am I setting for my kid? Like if I was gone tomorrow, would he end up making some of the same mistakes that I make? simply because he's my kid. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's where it started. (laughs) Well, first of all, I'd like to point out that you said, you know, you don't, you didn't need to reflect on, um, you know, you didn't need to stop killing people and robbing, robbing banks, despite the fact that you are dressed like a 1930s bank robber. Um, (laughs) (laughs) we we had to we had to reference it at some point yeah. um you know it's funny i was having a conversation with somebody i work with today about um almost the same subject the the way that children perceive uh the, the way they pick up on our words and our actions mm-hmm. and that a lot of people miss out on that a lot of people don't see that as clearly as uh somebody like me who's around kids all day and does see the direct results of those actions. Um, you know, and, and we were, we were kind of discussing a way to incorporate that idea to kind of, uh, teach parents about their role in their child's education as part of like an orientation for next year's Mm -hmm. kindergarten. But it, it, it is absolutely true. It's so, you just don't always think of every word coming out of your mouth as a teaching moment. You, right. you think of things you've planned as a teaching moment, as teaching yeah. moments, but it's really, you know, every moment of consciousness. Yeah. Um, what a, that, that's a really interesting idea for that book to stem from. Yeah. And you it's know. a heavy, it's a heavy weight too. Like you do, you yeah. have to be conscious and aware of it. And I think like it piggybacking on what you're saying, I think that, the most beneficial thing that we can do as adults and maybe just as humans in general is to acknowledge our flawed nature. And I think that parents often make a mistake or just people in general, we make mistakes when we, not only when we make the first mistake, but when we double down rather than admitting the mistake. And you see that all the time, whether I mean, politicians are the most egregious example of like, we, we all saw what you said. We all heard what you, you, you know, saw what you did. We've all read the articles, like what you're trying to act like this didn't happen rather than like, when was the last time a politician just said, you know what? I messed up. I totally messed up. And I'm sorry, like I, I'm, I'm flawed and I'm, I'm doing my best, but I'm going to make mistakes. And I think that acknowledging that to kids too, gives them that ability to say like, yeah, that we, we are all flawed. And that makes, that makes existence more complex and humans more complex. And that's 
that's more interesting in fiction too. Mm. I think you see that sometimes with writers, they try to make certain characters saints and uh, we're not interested in that. Most of us anyway, like we want to see flawed humans doing the best they can or <laughs> killing people. De depends on what kind of book you're reading, but we do want to <laughs> see flawed people like just, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm trying my best. I think it uh, all comes down to self-awareness, which it's really difficult to word it a, a more concise way than saying um, if we were all self-aware, but then that's saying we all think the same. But to be self-aware of your, I guess, uh, your outputs and your energy, uh, be it negative, positive, whatever, Um Another thing is, I know you guys know this, but maybe this will help someone else is uh, my biggest, one of my biggest vices was drinking. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, an, I was one of them weird kind of drinkers, uh, not an alcoholic, but binge drinker. I could drink all damn day. I could puke <laughs> my guts up and still, you know, just go all fucking day and night. And um you can't do that when you have a wife and kids. So I didn't want my kids seeing that shit. And that's kind of my con contribution to this conversation is uh, I know something I was very self-aware and yeah. hit a point in the road. And my wife and I talked and spent seven months. So I'm Good not looking for, for you, man. Thanks, man. Good for you. No, truly. That's, that's not a small thing, Patrick. That's like to acknowledge those things in yourself and, and to actually do something to change it, to be proactive, to be active in mm -hmm. your life and acknowledge those things about yourself, whatever they are, big, small, somewhere in between and say, this is not who I want to be anymore. This is not the version of me that I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if I lost my boy, not seeing him every day. If I lost my wife in a divorce, uh, then I lose everything. I've wanted them my entire life. So be really fucking dumb if I lost them <laughs> for a goddamn bottle, you know? Yeah. So, but um, how cool, how cool that like what you just said is acknowledging the usefulness of fear too. How useful a tool that is to say, I am afraid of losing X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And I could be responsible for that. So here's what I have to do. Versus taking the approach of, oh, the universe is against me or everyone's against me or I've had a long day, I deserve this, whatever it is. To say, um, you know what, I'm a selfish asshole and I want what I want and I need to change if I'm to keep this life that I, I, I have and that I want to build and these people that I love. So yeah. good for you, man. Thanks, man. Yeah. You know what? I mean, we see it on social media all the time. It's like we're in our 30s, right? And I thought that at this point, probably because I was younger and I didn't know, but I thought a lot of us would be like self-aware and kind of want to do better. But um, obviously the world's still fucked up in a lot of ways. So that's not true, but yeah, I see a lot of kids you know, our age that act like that. Go ahead, Tyler. There, uh, one of my all time favorite authors is this guy named Paul Oster. And uh, I can't even remember what book it was in, but in one of his novels, he has this line where he says, one character says to another that only the good doubt their own goodness. The bad know they're good. <laughs> That's thought, great. Isn't wow. that beautiful? Like, yeah. And I and I'm I'm constantly reminded of that. Like, if that that self awareness, that self doubt, even, am I doing the right thing? Am I the person I want to be? That that is an indication that you're on the right path. If you're constantly questioning your decisions and the way that you're acting and 
the things that you say? You know, there's debates on this back and forth, not just social media, but in general, because you could take, you can make anything negative, but, um, or positive, but, you know, uh, when I say the word hustle or like determination or bettering yourself, like, I think we should always be better on ourselves. Otherwise, like you had a plateau, you get comfortable, you get, um, what's that word? Uh, starts with a C, um, complacent 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 yes you become complacent you could be compliant as well (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's good (laughs) and that's just that leads to laziness and a lot of bad stuff at least in my experience so yeah i mean i think we should always be better in ourselves which brings us back to writing um from your like you started (laughs) off with criterion that's that's strong plus you had um chuck endorse it in in quite a few Mm. ways chuck polnick um yeah not chuck uh Anyone else? Mm-hmm. I didn't. I thought I had another Chuck. No, I only got Wendig. Wendig. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's not because you're Eat friends. Cheese. It's 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 really each. It's just an excellent <laughs> what the fuck, Brendan. <laughs> I'm so sorry, man. I was I was I almost jumped in to to tell you what a great like that's the that's the best segue I've ever heard you do, and we just we just fucking derailed it. I'm so it just, sorry. It just popped in my head. I'm like, let's roll with it. Let's, Yep. 146 episodes, 147 yeah. episodes. I get one segue, right? Yeah, um, you're back to writing. It was it was good. So, you yeah. know, we'll we'll pretend that it's what the edit, but, edit button's <laughs> for. I want to jump all the way to Almost Ruth because yeah. I adore that book, man. And oh, when you. yeah, when you and I talked briefly about I didn't realize I was reading the extended version, by the way. And then I read, I finished in there softly. Uh, today um and i'm like wait a minute wake up i've read that before i read that like two days ago so um yeah let's talk about almost ruth and why this means so much to you and that's another i don't think i knew that you came from a single mother which explains uh a lot for your books and your love your obvious love for disney (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a question there. I'm not sure where. Obvious love for Disney. You're gonna have to explain that to me. Oh yeah, because like Toy Story and quite a few others are just like a single single mother. Right, right. Okay. And there is, you know, I mean, those are sad. They're they're sad movies, but they turn them into like cutesy family movies, which I love. But yeah, you know, before we get to almost Ruth, so speaking of Disney, Pixar, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day. Um uh, and I mentioned to him, if you want to know like how to tell a really good story, some of those Pixar movies are really good examples of it. Um, like just from a storytelling perspective, like you can debate the the merit of the movie itself. But here's something that all Pixar movies do really well: is they keep objects present. So an object will appear early in the film. And it, um, and sh- this is something that Chuck Polinick talks about a lot, and he mentions it in Consider This, is that y- if you're going to present an object and focus on it, you have to give it some weight and some meaning. And then every time that it comes back into the story, it needs to acquire a new meaning and a new meaning until it's something completely different by the end of the story. And it's something that I've, I've observed in watching some of those Pixar movies with my kids. Like They do that really, really well. Is that you're talking about um, always bringing back the theme every so often you you re- reiterate a theme, but I mean, it's a theme, but not the same 
substance of that theme, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like an example would be a a wedding ring. Say at the beginning of the story, a wedding ring represents love and devotion. And then this woman finds out her husband's a murderer and suddenly that ring begins to represent something different. Mm, Maybe it represents a lie. Maybe it represents the handcuffs that were put on him once he was arrested for his crimes or the way that he strangled the women that he killed, you know, something strangling your finger. Who knows? But that, that object can be can come to represent not only the themes, but it morphs over time throughout the story. That's really good. Cause like when I started out writing like objects, uh, I guess the easy one would be like a gun. It's just mm-hmm. a gun, but it can be so much more than that. Um, before we get off Disney, I do want to say one thing and it sounds silly, but it's uh, something neat that I don't know if you guys saw, maybe you have, but the truck from Toy Story 1 uh, does appear in a bunch of Pixar movies. It's just really quick cuts of it, uh, like one shot. Um, it might be, I don't know if it's every movie, but it's in a lot of them. And they do that with a lot of like characters too. It's pretty, I, I like that. It's like its own universe. I love when yeah. books do that, yeah. which is why Pixar Anderson- Dark Tower. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say dark tower. Yep. I was going to say, which is why I enter softly works really well. It's a good segue. Go ahead. Ryan. Segue. <laughs> I've ruined two, two, you know, in, in fairness, I don't expect you to have good segues. So the fact that I've ruined two of them is really like, it's not my fault. Um, it's on you actually. <laughs> you know, someone once wrote someone needs some self-reflection. Um, <laughs> Someone once wrote a review of the show where they said that we have interesting guests, but the host is annoying, which is weird because there's two hosts. So I think they meant you. <laughs> Good no, one. But that, okay. is a, so, that is a real review, man. You should check it out. They like us. They, they seem to think we're annoying. It's fine. Yeah, man. I don't care. Um, anyways. Uh, so actually, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I like that transition extra because I had that same thought and I kind of wanted to talk about uh, writing the, that shared universe and how you approach writing novella length stories uh, that take place in the same world as a familiar story to the audience. Because a lot of your audience is coming at Enter Softly having already read Criterium upon its original release, having already read The Dark Side of the Room when it was when it first came out. Um, what thought and how much editing did you put into these to make them uh, tied but also standalone to a degree? Hmm. So the the shared nature of a lot of these stories um you'll you find it in burn the plans as well like they're all linked in some way and that's not something that i realized at first okay so starting with criterion criterion takes place in portland uh and so does the dark side of the room and to me that was just it was natural like there's just there's a throwaway sentence basically in the dark side of the room that mentions um the main character Betsy seen on the news that someone had been burned on Archer way. And that's it. So it suggested, it lets the reader know, okay, we're in the same city, same, same, uh, same universe as criterion where these things are happening, but they're not necessarily 
uh, one doesn't rely on the other. Um, and I think it, it just, it came to me as writing these stories that I realized they, they're connected. They take place in, in similar environments, similar areas. Um, like almost Ruth takes place just on the other side of a forest from uh, the novel I have coming out from earthling next year called Midas. So they're within the same universe. And there's actually quite a few connections between those two. I, you know, like maybe I'll, maybe I'll jump ahead to almost Ruth because um, in that book, I had finished Midas. Midas had been written and was making the rounds with the agents when I wrote almost Ruth and Midas was just one of those books that kind of haunted me even after I wrote it. I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And there are forces at work within that novel that I couldn't quite shake. And then I started this book about a grave digger and thought, well, that'd be kind of cool to set it. I mean, it's got to be set somewhere. So maybe it's close to where uh, Midas takes place. And then I didn't realize writing as I was writing almost Ruth that it would be the same forces uh, at work that are in Midas. So a lot of it is just really accidental. Now, going back to Criterium in the Dark Side of the Room and writing those additional novellas within that universe, that was a lot of fun because it was like the stage is, was already set. You know, the audience was gone, but all the props were still on stage. And I was able to just come in and say, okay, well, how can I repurpose these? And um, it was actually a lot of fun. Like Patrick, you mentioned Enter Softly. That was a lot of fun for me because it ends up being a counterpoint, I think, to Criterium, the original story. Mm-hmm. The way that Criterium, th- that story goes is very different from the way that Enter Softly goes as a story and so together they end up being this balancing act that tells a more complete version of how addiction can affect people so it uh with all those stories it was more fun and organic than really planned now some of the stories in burn the plans um like lion's den for example the devil on the stand full fathom five well (laughs) I may have just given something away I shouldn't, but some of those stories reference a place and a secret government agency that will come into play in later stories. So that's something in answer to your question, Brennan, that I actually have established. And I knew that I wanted to tell various stories that connect back to this place. And I actually have a, a, a novel that I'll be starting soon that also references this place that I've called the shed. That's cool. So, man. yeah, that was a roundabout way of answering your question. Some some of it was really organic and unplanned, and some of it is discovery, like with almost Ruth and Midas, and then some of it is more, uh, more more calculated and planned in that regard. But at some point in the future, I think I've got ideas that all of it will be revealed to be connected. Hmm. Unless people listen to this episode and then they're like, aha. Yeah, um, right. I do like how, and I meant to say this earlier in Criterion, um, I like how you're respectful with addiction because, like, we all, you can take the super easy route. And, you know, my, I've said this probably a million times now. My wife's a social worker. 
Mm. Um, I know you guys know that, but for those that don't, and I bring that up because she has uh, made me more sensitive to topics I I probably wouldn't have understood on my own, such as, Mm. um, you know, a respectful thing is they're not addicts. Someone with an addiction, their addiction is not their, it's not who they are. You know, that's, that's just, that's, that's like, that's like, if I were to say, for me, the alcoholic thing, like, um, that's not me, you know, I'm mm-hmm. more than that, or whatever. But um, I like how you handled it because you touch on something that um, I'm all over the place tonight, but Breaking Bad does this really well too with drugs is they show the it's so addiction uh, addicting because of the tragedy in it. You see what happens with families. You see what happens. With, it It destroys Sure, he has a fuckload of money that not even a, a pharaoh could spend in a lifetime, but it, it doesn't matter. He lost everything. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that he didn't want anything but that, um, which is interesting, too. But uh, it, it, the way you handle things of that nature, I think, is um, really worth noting. And if someone were to be on the fence of which book do I try first, Criterion was my first, so that'd be my reason for that um brennan i didn't yeah. mean to steal any thunder potential thunder so uh no i'm what? i'm i'm actually i want to oh tyler did you have something to add go for it man no uh i kind of want to jump back to what you were explaining a, a minute ago where uh with the connection between stories and not just in the collection enter softly but even among burn the plans and midas and uh almost ruth and all of that. So I, I am just, I, I love the idea of writers having their own shared universes with all these connections. I think obviously Stephen King does a great job mm-hmm. with it. Brian Keene has mm-hmm. a ton of that stuff in his work. And I'd love to know what's your method for keeping track of things like that. When you, you know, you've been writing for a long time, you've mm-hmm. sprinkled these elements into many, many stories. Some people have read, some people haven't read yet. Um, how do you keep track of it all? Yeah, good question. Yeah, it's it's all right now. It's it exists organically in the sense that it is like it's like a a book that I've read that doesn't exist yet, and it's a book or a story that explains all the connections. And I plan at some point this year to actually write it all down in a way that's more linear that I can keep track of. But the sto- I think writing the stories themselves have helped explain some of those elements and connections to me. So those, those, the connecting tissue exists in those books and I just see the bigger picture. And so right now it's, it's a pretty scattered method of keeping track of it but it's a my method was to write almost ruth to write enter softly the story to to make sure that those connections are down and they exist and by doing so it's locked into my brain and then the the larger framework is something that i'm i'm aware of and still piecing together but i do plan to to put it down in a in a way that i that i can reference you know to actually write it out map it out Cause it wasn't a pl- like the whole shared thing wasn't a plan. It just came about, uh, over time. So once I realized that I got excited about it and I wasn't trying to like create this thing and Hey, everyone, I've got a shared universe, but it just happened. And I thought, well, I, this is cool. I like it. And I like it. 
um, because it's subtle. I like the I like subtle nods to things. Like I mentioned the line in, in the dark side of the room. Like, oh yeah, I know what that's referencing. But if you didn't know, it doesn't ruin anything for you. I like almost the title why it's called almost Ruth too. That's really it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And um, that's um, you know, maybe that's a, another example of morphing something. So rather than an object, that phrase ends up morphed and it means three different things throughout the course of that book. So by the time what 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 it means the first time you hear it hmm. um, versus yeah. the, the final time that you hear it, it means something completely different. Now, obviously, I won't say the what because uh, we try not to that. spoil stuff. Yeah, but um, but here we what go. It, no. What Abel discovers the way you wrote that is a topic that I think can easily be that mythology has been talked about and written about and storied to to death and i think that you can fuck it up real easy but you know you really didn't the approach you took it as and and tell me if i am getting close to spoiling it but the approach you took it as was kind of like a from it was like an adventure mixed in with some eerie shit it's like james cameron's alien there's like really far out architectural stuff that's at play there's some really neat mythological stuff that isn't from that religion but it is it you have this like amalgamation of everything and it works perfectly it's like you're an alchemist man and this is what you got from those elements that's really cool to hear uh, yeah, you, ancient architecture like that, ancient civilizations, whether it's Inca, Maya, Aztec, all that stuff, Egyptian, just fascinates me endlessly. You know, my wife was talking about that stuff. She said to my mother-in-law just the other day, she goes like, well, what if we're not the first that, you know, we got, I'm putting words in her mouth now, but I, it's something along the lines of, um, what if we weren't the first to like be the smarter, like get this far mm-hmm. in tech? Like who? I don't. Maybe we aren't. There's a you know, there stuff are uh, cyclical. Um, yeah, yeah. And like the Aztecs, I know that those guys, the ancient Egyptians, like something I learned a while ago. Like ancient Egyptians had batteries, which is really fascinating. It's just all this stuff is like electricity. It's it's always been here. You know, no one invented it. We just we just discovered it, and people pioneered the ways we use it. So I know that Aztecs they had these crazy like complex societies. Ancient Rome had uh, the Library of Alexander uh, uh, Alexandria. Um, It's you know said to have like the the real stories of uh, Atlantis, and but that got burnt down. Um, It's it's really interesting to think about that stuff. Um, Graham, Math- Graham Masterson, I, I think his name is. Uh, he is. I saw him on a Joe Rogan show a while ago. He's. He talks about ancient civilizations. Graham Hancock. Oh God, I'm mixing up two names. Yeah, Graham <laughs> Hancock. Yeah. Thank you. He's. Yeah, he's one of those guys out there asking the questions about is was there. There's like a version of of the history of planet Earth and civilization that is told by mainstream archaeology and then there's this other version that kind of these fringe guys are they're asking these questions of well the timelines don't add up Mm. in terms of when when civilizations are appearing over here and over here and there was an ice age but but a comet 
hit earth around this time and like the movement of um uh humans how they came from you know africa Europe, into europe Eurasia, and over yeah. yeah and over the bering land sh- land bridge and down into the amazon and all that stuff like what fascinates me endlessly is that the true history of the world i don't think is something that we'll ever know but it's f- so fascinating so it it lends itself to to storytelling because everything is just a story you're just guessing at it like there are certain things obviously if you have a civilization that had the ability to keep track of what it had done and created and had some language then okay fair enough but then then you've got like the ancient sumerians who claim to have had kings for four uh, like one king in particular who lived for forty thousand years yeah you know so what, what do you make of that what does it mean where's the timeline you know and then you've got and that's not even getting into pangea like at one point there was one massive landmass, and when did that you know, fracture and split apart and become the continents that we now know. I think it is all fascinating. And, you know, I love uh, the ancient alien, the ancient astronaut theory stuff. Yeah. Like that show just brings me so much joy. Do I believe it? I believe in everything, man. What do you got? <laughs> Loch Ness Monsters, Sasquatch. Like, show me an Ancient Aliens episode. I'm like, yes, 100%. That's exactly how it happened. But I do find that stuff fascinating because it, it gives you a, it's, t- it's telling a story mm. regarding some structures or some evidence that have been, has been found or some writing. And it is fascinating that every single culture, without exception, talks about people coming down from the stars yeah with yeah, that exception yeah yeah it's in a lot of uh older uh paintings too and um this all goes back to being compliant like if there is a compliant uh, or complacent complacent i did it again. complaining <laughs> they, well when there's a conventional way of thinking in science in particular it takes a while or architecture or uh, archaeologist architecture. Jesus, I'm mixing up all my words. I'm with you, man. Archaeologists where they think it's this one way and there's someone like, well, let's challenge it. Yeah. And there's a lot of sure. people, you know, and I think it doesn't go back to people wanting to better themselves. It goes back to people looking like fucking idiots. They're like, well, I thought it was a stole time. Well, guess what? You got to better yourself and no more. You keep <laughs> digging. You got to find some more shit. Yeah, I am I am apprehensive or mistrustful of people who are absolutely certain about things. I just yeah. cuz you, you become closed off. The one one area where you find a lot of open-mindedness is regarding space. Mm. I mean, outer space, um the universe which is something that I find fascinating and I read a ton about um but you'll find a lot a lot more willingness amongst scientists and astrophysicists to say, I don't know. We have no idea. In fact, we don't even know the right questions to ask half the time. Like I was reading something the other day in a book about, um, about dark matter and how we know it exists and that it takes up most of the space in the universe. But as of right now, we couldn't even collect some of this dark matter. We have nothing that could hold it in place that could measure it. So we know it's there, we know it exists, but we can't measure it, we can't see it, and we have no clue what purpose it serves. 
Did uh, is that from Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, um, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry? No, I haven't. I haven't read that one. Oh, because I read it. In, I read that and that. Uh, so I, I got love that guy, man. Steve, I got these, dude. I got this at a thrift store. Stephen That's Hawkins awesome. books, brand. That's a great book. Freaking new, in a box set. And brand like spanking new, it's like yeah. five bucks. That guy's. That's- a- that's one of the smartest. That was an impressive set, man. Now I'm yeah. jealous. Yeah, that was um Bantam uh collection. Um, I mean, like there's some chips in there, but you know, I'm not gonna play. <laughs> like he's selling it right now. Yeah. Who wants this? <laughs> like Ten <laughs> bucks. Ten bucks. <laughs> Come to my house. I got a free little library. So let's jump to Midas. Tyler, I know that uh you got them coming through Earthling. We we talked about that a little bit. Um mm-hmm. what can you tell us about? The experience so far ah oh, well as you guys probably know paul miller who runs earthling is is phenomenal um and i've been collecting earthling books for a, a number of years um in fact the first earthling book i ever bought was everything you need by Mike, michael marshall smith who was the first uh guy who who blurbed criterium and then he wrote the introduction for burn the plans so really cool kind of full circle moment there um yeah so midas is this big dark crazy horror novel that i wrote back in 2017 and i edited it and wasn't happy with it is it kind of an interesting story behind midas because uh a story about editing really because i wrote this book and I loved it, but there were elements of it that I loved, not the whole thing. So there was like this skeleton within the book and just all this, this other shape around it that was all wrong. And I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't see how to fix it. So um, I'd met this writer, phenomenal writer named Joshua Moore. Um, He's like a very literary uh, writer. He was... um, he does a lot of teaching. He's just an energetic, brilliant thinker. And he's, um, I think he's working on some, uh, as a like showrunner for something that's in the works anyway. Um, so I reached out to him and, and just said, look, man, would you be willing to work with me on this? Do you have the time? Uh, because he has his own like, uh, editing company and he took this project on and he and I worked worked on it together for for months and what he brought was this really objective viewpoint and he's a his understanding of story is really powerful and his enthusiasm like he kind of he has the enthusiasm of like a josh mallerman like that kind of guy who comes alongside you but he's also really tough in in terms of how he edits things and it was exactly what i wanted that man this is awesome i love this this sucks do better why did you do this you know like that that kind of uh combination was was just perfect mm. and he he was able to to help me see the skeleton of that book that i loved and how to make that the whole shape of the story and so i rewrote the entire book from scratch and uh, that is the version that now exists that um that paul has read and so I'm excited to, 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 I'm editing it again right now. Actually, I was working on it today and it's been two years since I've read it, believe it or not. Cause I started sending it to agents in early 2020. 
So it's been exactly two years since I read it because I oh, edited shit. it with with Josh Moore and then started sending it out and then worked on other stuff for the last two years. And now here we are where Midas is alive again. And so I'm going over it for the first time and it's uh, it's interesting. It's like looking at a time capsule. You know, it's like it's like reading a book that someone else wrote because my memory of it is so hazy. Someone else did write it. You were a different writer then, which is important to remember because I kicked my own ass with this. And like I wrote the same about me per se, but I wrote like six novels before um, I even got a short story published. Mm -hmm. And I always say that I'm never going to return to them, but I think it's important to focus on your approach with Midas because you stuck with it. You were a different writer then because you had different tools. You're an aged writer now, more of a veteran, if you will. Mm. And, um, and by the way, sorry to cut you off. That was rude. Um, fucking, (laughs) fucking jerk. But, uh, uh, and it paid off. Mm-hmm. And this leads to a question that I've been dying to ask you on air is enough for nothing. There's success right away. Like Brennan, like mm-hmm. seriously, he got it within two years of trying and I'm going on nine years, but then again, he's tried with different things and I have, but my point is, is I know you have been writing with the mindset to be a novelist for a while. Um, can you talk about the approach for patients because, and this is not a knock on self-pub, I'm all for whatever works for someone. I just do think that there are quite a lot of examples of, um, I can't find a publisher right now. I got to wait right now. I can't get with this person's been, this person that's been writing for like 10, 15 years finally has, I want that now. Can Can you talk about that? that long game, that long-term game approach? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great question. So, uh, so yeah, I wrote, I wrote a lot of novels before Midas and I knew that they weren't good enough. Once I finished Midas, I thought, I think this is it. This is, this is the one that I truly, truly believe in. Uh, It's, it, for me, it was what I set out to do, and it was the combination of voice, story, and style that I wanted in this book. So I think it's important for any writer to be really honest with themselves about what they're creating and what their intentions are for it. I'm, I'm a, something I think about a lot is intention, intentionality being intentional with the decisions that we, that I make, the things I say, uh, and how I approach things. So what I wanted from Midas was the best shot at a big life. And that meant a big publisher. And so I'm going to hold, hold that thought there. And then I'm going to move to something else and tie it back together. So I'm a huge, huge music fan. I'm a musician. I've listened to albums my whole life. And by that, I mean, I prefer the album format. I prefer, I don't like singles. I don't like best of, I like an album. On a, on a good album, you'll have a couple singles. And then you've got all these other tracks that are in between. And I think it's important. It was important for me to think about it in this way that 
take take a body of work like you take Criterion, The Dark Side of the Room, Almost Ruth, Burn the Plans. Like these are tracks on an album, and I need to know what place those have within the context of what I'm doing. And I think that's important for for a lot of writers because I do think that sometimes people, um, some writers they see a work in a certain way that maybe it's not. And you need outside voices. Like anytime a band puts out an album, I guarantee you, I can tell you that there are discussions about which songs will be the singles. And some of them are written to be singles. What's the single going to be? Why? Because that's the thing that gets out there. That's get, that gets the traction that gets on the radio, that gets on commercials. Uh, so you don't want to pick the wrong song to be your single. And I think that's where a lot of writers get frustrated, at least some that I've, I've spoken to, is they're trying to pitch something to agents or publishers that maybe isn't a single. And so you have to have that like self-awareness. Like I was talking about this a little bit on um, Chad Lutsky's podcast a couple of weeks ago, that the dark side of the room to me is a minor work. I never tell somebody start with the dark side of the room. I tell them start with Criterion because I think it's a stronger book. I love the dark side of the room. I'm proud of it. It's why I put it out, but I know what it is and what it isn't. And that's not a story that I would have, would have ever sent to an agent and said, Hey, I think we've, we've got something here, but I did feel that way about Midas. And it's not like a, an ego thing. It's just, to me, it's a realism thing in terms of being able to step back objectively from what I've created and see it for what it is. And I wrote the dark side of the room. I had a blast writing it. But I, I know it's not a, it's it was never meant to be a big hit, you know, for for a variety of reasons. But I still want it to have a life. I think that there's an audience for something like that. So hopefully that answers your question. But that's that's like I once I once I wrote Midas and edited edited it, I held it close and would not let it go. I wasn't going to self-publish it. I wasn't going to give it to an indie press. Not until it had been rejected by everyone, every agent and every publisher. And then I would do whatever I needed to do to get it out into the world. But I wanted to at least uh, swing big with that one. That does answer, but I'm going to be a little pushy on one aspect of my question is... yeah. We're living in, I mean, we're old enough where we are the last generation to experience a world before the internet, um, mm-hmm. before instant gratification in pretty much every every cognitive aspect. And I think that we are all falling to, uh, I want this now. I want it in the fullest capacity. Example uh, shows. I want mm-hmm. the entire season right now so I can binge it. Um Otherwise, we act like little babies and bitch about it. Not all of us, yeah, but yeah. a lot. So my question is um, specifically with maybe newer writers, maybe writers that uh, are spinning their wheels, have been doing it for a little while, but they're like, uh, should I release something now or not? Um, I'm glad I haven't released for the same reason as you those novels. I like some of them a lot. Maybe I'll return them. Maybe I won't. But uh I'd like to know if you have advice specifically on if a newer writer were to say, should I wait it out? Should I work on my craft? What, what, what do you think the best approach is? And obviously 
this doesn't work for everyone, but just in general. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I kind of avoided the patience con, part of con, your question. Consider this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's seriously, an, that's one of my favorite nonfiction books, man. It's so good. Oh, yeah. It's Consider this by Chuck Palahniuk. To, yeah. Sorry to clarify. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, two parts of that question. So the part that I avoided the first time was patience. What, is, what does that look like? To me, Patience is not sitting around twiddling your thumbs. Patience is actually a, an active verb. Patience isn't just sitting and waiting for something to happen. So for a writer, what that means primarily, I believe, is writing. That you absolutely have to be honing your craft. And I, I think that to your point about a modern time that we live in, there are so many distractions. So I think that one needs to be intentional with their time. We all have 24 hours. How are you using it? Some people are writing books. Some are binge watching shows. What are you going to do? And that means denying yourself saying, no, I'm, I, I cannot uh, watch a show. Uh, for me, for, you know, actually for a number of years, uh, I, I used to be a massive film buff. And at a certain point I realized like that is a two hour chunk of time. Every single time I watch a movie, uh, I think that needs to go, which do I want? Do I want to be a writer or do I want to be a guy watching movies? I want to, I want to write. That's truly what I want to do. I need to read and I need to write. So that meant like cutting out movies almost completely for a couple years. And even now I only watch maybe five, six movies a year total, like once every couple of months. I don't watch any shows. I don't. Uh, so it's a time management thing. So in that patience, what I'm getting at is uh, you have to be protective of your time and create space for you to create. And then I think step number two would be to create, once you have work, to give it, to get it in front of critical eyes. That to me is the, one of the most important things that you have to have people critical of what you're creating. It can't be all a bunch of people just applauding it. Yes, this is amazing. Put it out. You need someone to say, like I was telling you about Josh Moore, like, I love this. This sucks. I need that. And that, that doesn't bother me at all. Like, I love that kind of critical feedback. And I have a um, small group of readers that I send work to that give me that. So th this is all time elapsing. You know, this is weeks and months of time before something is ready. So the patience aspect to me is a very active thing. So um, that's that's part one. <laughs> I forgot the second half of the question. <laughs> Um, I think should they was... put out work instant gratification? Yeah, yeah that's right? it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. My that's background in terms reply, of though. art and creating all comes from music. Like I started playing in bands in junior high, and it was all about the hustle. It was all about spending hours and hours in a garage learning to play your instrument first of all, because we all sucked, and then learning how to write songs, and then practicing those songs and then getting gigs and then can you get studio time to record a demo because the goal was always to get signed to a record label so from the time that i started playing in bands to the time that i was in a band on a record label touring man that was like six seven eight years you know between the two and we never stopped playing 
we didn't have an album out, but we never stopped playing and creating things. Nice. And so I think it's like that that's built into me is that you're constantly working for this thing. Better in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, so not to like repeat myself, but something that I, I uh, talked about with Chad on his podcast was we were talking about some writers like um, Jeremy Robert Johnson, Stephen mm. Graham Jones and Philip mm. Fricasse is that they did all this indie work before they had a big publisher uh, book come out. So like from our perspective, it looks like this moment arrived when in reality they were creating the moment that we saw happen. And so I, I just, I mean, not to sound like simplistic, but I really think it's just a combination of being patient and working and getting your work in front of critical eyes and knowing that none of this is immediate, that it takes time and it's going to look different for every single writer. You know, Philip Focasio on his podcast the other day said Laird Barron told him when he first started, like, expect about 10 years from the time you start writing and publishing seriously to the time uh, some kind of break comes. I've heard that from Brandon Sanderson too. And both him and Laird, I think they know what they're talking about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. On, but it's all, it's all about creating work so that the moment, like a moment can arrive. Yeah. It can't arrive unless you've got work that is good. Otherwise, what, what is it that's coming out? What is the moment happening for? You see a spotlight on someone on stage. That's not the first time they're on that stage. They are repeating themselves. You know, what's one, one person that uh, not obsessed, but really into, um, I, I love Steve Jobs. Like, I think he's fascinating. He seems like a total dickhead at <laughs> a lot of times, but I'm absolutely fascinated with that guy. And he is very, he was very meticulous with uh, how he presented for um, his famous, you know, shows. And he would just study the lines, his approach and whatnot, and it paid off. Um, I mean, one of many examples, Michael Jordan didn't just walk on the court and say, <laughs> I'm MJ, I'm going to kick yeah. everyone's ass, you know? Yeah. Um, Brandon, what you are ever, you? You ever watch any stand-up comedy? Yeah, I'll, yeah, I love stand-up comedy, man. I find stand-up comedy really, really fascinating because a really good one, when they're on stage, they are all by themselves. It's, un it's a unique art form in that sense. that mm. You're on a stage, but it is only you. And with their movements, their facial expressions, their tone, and their delivery, they have an entire audience of thousands laughing or thinking depending and the control and the skill that is required to pull that off. Like I I'm almost not laughing at all when watching a comedian, because I'm just astonished at the level of talent and skill that it takes to pull that off. Even a, even one that I don't think is that funny. I'm still amazed at what that takes. I'm like, that think, with, I'm like I, that with drummers with live shows. Yeah. They're, the the skill is just incredible. It's unparalleled. But but as I'm watching that, I'm thinking, how hard have you worked to be at this point where you can be on stage in front of that many people and not stutter? Like a good I, uh, comedian, you realize how how rarely they stumble over their words. Yeah, um, it's, it's flawless. I I heard uh, 
Oh man, um, Kevin Hart. That's it. Kevin Hart. The the amount of practice he puts into a show is uh, it, it's it's his life, man. Mm-hmm. It's dedication. Yeah. Um, you got to be like that with your book. I think this is a good tie-in. And my whole point was about uh, having patience. Is like it's it's interesting. It's not that I'm actively saying this person's going to feel like, I don't know. I don't know who's going to blow up. If I did, I would do it for myself and blow up, you know? Yeah. But, you know, the last thing that I'll say to that point, I guess, before we move on to Brennan's question is expectations. I think expectations are a thief of joy. Mm. If you are expecting things to happen for you or for other people to give you things, uh, like I don't expect anyone to ever uh, post about my book or retweet something. Hmm. You, all I expect to do is do what I can to to write the best book that I can and put it out and to promote it as as well as I can. But I'm not expecting someone else out there on the internet to do something for me to to make it happen. And I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth mentioning now. Like Eric LaRocca is a wonderful example of that with what happened with things have gotten worse since we last spoke. What a beautifully organic explosion that was. And it couldn't happen to a better person, you know, but what a cool thing to see is that was it just happened because people loved what they read and they spread the word and they made videos about it. And that just happened out of love for this thing that Eric created. And I love that. And I think that it can be, if you don't have the right frame of mind, like I've seen some frustration, like people want that to happen to their work. It's like, you can't, that can't be an expectation. And all you can control is the work that you put out. So focus on that make sure that's the best it can be. And maybe someday that'll happen. Maybe it won't doesn't matter as long as you're you're you are happy in the process of creating work that you're you're proud of yeah yeah that's true because if you're not having fun and i mean i've heard writers say that they had a big uh deal like a big contract but it wasn't for something that they actually enjoyed you're not that's the point you know it's just yeah to write for something you don't like doing i, I don't know brendan jump in sir I, I think that's a good point. And it's it's very easy to focus on the one book that explodes and kind of miss the thousands that don't. Um, mm-hmm. And to kind of analyze, um, well, what is it that this person did that has led to this success? What are the elements that go into the book? What are the elements that went into the marketing? Oh, you made a TikTok. Um, and you have to remember that, you know, there's a lot of hard work that goes into success and there's a lot of luck. Um, those are the two ingredients and one you can, one you can have control of, but by definition, the other you cannot. Right. Um, right. So it's, you just, you, you have to kind of let go and accept that. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to turn us to burn the plans and, uh, mm-hmm. rather than going story by story, um, I want to talk about something that you and I have had conversations about, and that's textures. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. What I found interesting is that even though you're talking about how these stories, some of them have larger ties, Mm -hmm. no two of them have the same feel. And I think, you know, a couple good examples of that are Golden Rule, uh, Deep Down. So tell us about, you know, a little bit about your short story. Um, Oh, gosh, there was a word there and it's just it's gone now. But tell (laughs) us about your process and, um, you know, the way you incorporate textures. Yeah. Okay. So first the, the process. So the way that burn the plans came about was accidental. And here's why. When I first started, uh, when I first had the opportunity to be in a workshop with Chuck, uh, gosh, this was back in 2017, 2018, maybe my memory is a little hazy on that, but the, the first, the first piece of, uh, writing that I brought in was a chapter from a novel that I was working on at the, or that I had actually finished and was editing at the time called cautioners. So I brought in this chapter and read it to this group of about 15 people and including Chuck. And the reaction was pretty tepid at best. And then the feedback that I was getting, I realized the people were saying, well, if this happens later in the book, maybe you should introduce that here. Or if this happens and the feedback became sort of fell apart and became useless because there wasn't a complete story arc. So what could they give feedback on other than like individual sentences, because there was no full story. So, uh, as soon as I I did that, I realized, okay, I'm not, I'm not bringing in a chapter from a a novel again. I'm not doing that. What I want to do is uh, I want to bring in something complete that I can get feedback on and that I get a reaction from people. Cause that's part of like Chuck's um, model for the workshop is you get this real feedback in real time from people. Mm. And the only way to really do that in a meaningful way is to to have them read a complete story, an entire arc. And then that thing, that whole thing can be critiqued. So that's what started me writing short stories because I, I'd written them before, but it's not my preferred uh, method. I much prefer longer, longer pieces. I tend to write more than I should anyway, and then cut it back a lot. Uh, so that started me writing stories and my whole goal is to write stories to get people to, uh, gasp or to get them by the end of the story to be like, whoa, because I mean, that's, the, that's the whole point, right? And I, I, we're, we're with an audience. So I want to, and you're sort of in competition because there's other people and you know, oh yeah, she's bringing a story tonight. And the last story she brought, like made that guy cry. <laughs> I want to see if I can make all of them cry. <laughs> so it became this really friendly sort of competition. And that's what got me started writing the stories. And all of those stories were written in workshop. Well, almost all of them, a few, few were written after, uh, but it wasn't until much, much later that I realized, I think I have a collection here. And that was an accidental sort of thing as well. Man, I'm I'm bad. What was the there was <laughs> two parts textures. of your question. Textures. textures. Yes, thank you. <laughs> textures. Uh and that was another thing that that came from workshop and just came from my own personal preference too. So I referenced albums earlier. That's how I saw thought of burn the plans as well. Uh 
But as I was writing it, before I knew it was a collection, it was just, okay, well, the last story that I brought in was written in this way. You know, say third person, omniscient narrator. And that's what everybody's bringing in. Or first person, a lot of first person, a lot of first person present tense. So I wanted to, to bring in something or stories that would feel different so that they would be me- memorable. That was my hope. Mm. That if I read a story written in the broken English of an Eastern European immigrant, that even if you didn't like the story, that you'd remember it. And uh, that ended up benefiting me, I think, or at least I'm, I'm pleased with the way that the, the entire book reads, because it is like an album where I think there are a couple stories that I view as like singles, like, okay, I think those are probably the best or my favorites among the bunch. But then these others have these different textures and voices so that hopefully you don't feel bored. Like I, a friend of mine texted me a couple of days ago saying that he was reading a short story collection and he's like, there were some good stories, but I got bored after a while because they were all the same style. Like this author has a style and every story is written in that way. It's like you too, the band. <laughs> <laughs> One long song. <laughs> Leave them out of this. Sorry, man. It's sorry, a- Bo- sorry, Bono. <laughs> but yeah, so part of that, part of that is is uh, my interest in in writing. Like, okay, so I wrote a story in um, this broken English, and some of it was just the the story dictating to me how it wanted to be told. Like Lion's Den is an example. There was a, a specific voice that I heard for this character. And then at a certain point, I realized it was a monologue. And then I realized that the voice had to be engaging enough to carry it because you don't get a lot of the the, the same kind of scene dynamics that you would if it's multiple characters going back and forth. So then it became a challenge of, well, how do I make this as dynamic as possible using just one man's voice? Hmm. But the textures I think are, are really important. And I think they're under, it's an underused tool in horror fiction, but it's got yeah. a long, long history, but the, I think it, it can be, man, there's so many, so many ways that we can twist it and use it. And especially if the story deserves it, like you mentioned deep down, which is a story told entirely through voicemail messages. And it wasn't meant to be a gimmick. That was just, I couldn't see any other way to tell the story. And I think that if we, if we approach stories in that way, at least for me, that it ends up becoming honest and not a gimmick. And hopefully a reader can see that. Like, I'm not trying to say, okay, well, here's a story written entirely on post-it notes just to be different. But the story needed to be told in a certain way. And if you you've read deep down, you know, like there's no other way to tell that story that I can think of because otherwise it gives away the game way too early. Mm -hmm. And then who's telling it at that point, somebody has to be telling it, which is a question I always start with, like talking about texture, who is telling the story and why, and from what point in time, is it something that's happening, something that's happened, and if it happened, was it yesterday or was it two years ago? And why are they telling it now? Why now? So that story, once like I had those questions and I realized that it has to be told this way. 
So uh, one thing you mentioned too, you know, in regards to uh, differentiating things is uh, viewpoint, first person versus third mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and one thing I noticed, and correct me if I'm misrepresenting your work, but it, it there were a lot of uh, a lot of your short fiction was in first person, whereas a lot of your longer stories you put them in third. And I wonder what's your rationale behind that. Good catch, Brennan. <laughs> he doesn't have an answer. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> so you guys, having read Consider This, you know, what Chuck teaches is minimalism, as was mm. taught to him by Tom Spanbauer, as was taught to Tom by Gordon Lish. So there's this, this history of minimalism and what it means. And minimalism, I think, at its core is it's just distilling a story down to its core elements that it it just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's not complex so with that most minimalism is written in first person because it's a narrow point of view and it's a filtered experience of this is happening to me and here's what i see and so a lot of what Chuck teaches is from this first person perspective and he likes that. And so as he was teaching us in workshop, the stories would become natural extensions of trying to incorporate some of those lessons. So if he's teaching us a a lesson about voice, like one of the most important lessons, you know, I always forget this when I'm asked that he ever taught me in terms of first person storytelling was, and not just taught me, but and taught the workshop. And I think he, he writes about it and consider this, if I'm not mistaken, but the idea that a first person story has some authority because you have someone telling you the story, who are they? Are they a mechanic? Well, then they better know something about cars. (laughs) So that's your head authority. And then the heart authority is of course, what they've been through and you believe it when they tell you about it. But the language that you use as a first person narrator needs to reflect the experiences of the person telling the story. Mm. Has your mechanic read Shakespeare? Is he going to speak in a, how's he going to speak? His dialect. Yeah. His cadence of speech, all of it. And what he knows, like it all has to be uh, centered around this person. You can't be showing off as the writer, you know, look at how smart I am and how fluid my sentences are. If you're trying to convince me that this is some ranch hand in, you know, Wyoming, and the best- there's going to be a different way of speaking. And so you have to study and listen to how people speak and, and try your best to be honest to that. So anyway, so a lot of the, the stories were extensions of that first per- push for pers- first person and uh, voice. Third person is has been in the past my preference. I like being able to swoop in to other characters. And there's a lot of freedom with that. But like we were talking about with the texture and all that, it can be, um, you have to be cautious because you can become too far removed from the individuals. So what I try to do a lot is a third person, but really close to the character that we're following. So it's not this big view, but it's a, it's a narrow view, but knowing things that they don't know. Big voice. That's a great catch. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Following the person. And um, 
it's often referred to as recording angel. So you've got an angel on the shoulder of your character recording what they see, but not much more than that. But this mm-hmm. angel can occasionally fly up and view a larger, larger view of, of what's happening. But you want to make sure you stick close. And that's part- where that's where I prefer to be. Hmm. My favorite part of the first part, person narrative is uh, that's their truth. Doesn't mean the rest of the world sees mm-hmm. it. Like Shutter Island's a great example of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dennis Lehane is is a great. I I love Dennis Lehane's writing, and uh, he does a f- phenomenal job of uh, first person, really close first person. Um, yeah, he's a wonderful writer. Hmm. Brennan. Uh, I'm kind of leaning towards what are you reading, but what is on your mind? Let's throw one more thing out about uh, Burn the Plans, um, and you can wrap it into your other books, too, because I love the way you always, there's a lot of focus on art, and especially in regards to illustration in your releases, um, whether they be something you put out or whether they, you know, something you were working with cemetery gates on. Mm -hmm. So give us just a little bit on that kind of inclusion of visual medium with, with your writing. Yeah. And do you mean like book covers as well as the interior? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, man, I think the art is so important. I, I just, I think it's the, it's the first best shot that you give a book. Mm. Um, for somebody to pick it up. I think something engaging and, you know, you look at a lot of book covers and they're just very, very generic designs. And I understand that there's probably a lot of focus groups that talk about that, that the title has to be yay big. And if you have a guy holding a gun like this, it probably sells X amount of copies. So you see the same thing over and over again. And I think that we're in a day and age now where people readers they do like creative artistic choices in their books. And I like, so clarity and beauty are two things that I'm really drawn to. Like if you look at the, the four books along Patrick's shelf back there, like <laughs> I can't do personally, that. I just, I, I love the way that they look. I, each one of them has some color and some boldness and, but it's also clear, you know, it's not messy. And I think horror for a lot of years has had really messy covers, like super, super dark and like just messy looking and which is all fine. I mean, it has its place for sure. I mean, a lot of them look like punk rock records, you know, but I'm always, I've always liked the the clean and um, clear to me. Mm. And for, um, for burn the plans, every story has an illustration done by this really talented artist named Ryan Mills, who also did the cover front and back cover for enter softly. So that's, um, that's all him. And he's an incredible artist, you know, has a very stark, realistic dreamlike style. Mm. Uh, and I, I just thought it'd be cool to have an illustration accompanying each story. So that it was, again, you know what, man? It was totally a texture thing too. As I was thinking just visually, like I, I love books. I love them. I love the covers, the spines, the pages. I love everything about them. Uh, and something lights up in my brain. And if, if I'm looking at a book and, and this unexpected thing is present within the text and, it, and uh, it gives you pause for a moment. And so I thought it'd be really cool to have some visual representations in there. And he draws primarily in black and white. So 
it was perfect. Uh, and it was a really fun process because some of those I had ideas for specifically what I wanted, but the re- most of them were me just saying, Hey man, read the story and see what leaps out at you. And then we'll talk about it. And so there's a lot of back and forth so that he had some passion and energy in what he was creating. It wasn't me just telling him make this. So a lot of those, uh, illustrations, I'd say probably 75% of them were all his, his idea based on the story he just read. That's cool. And I love that yeah. because then when I, I open the book, I get to see someone else's art and passion, uh, included in that Hmm. and it is texture so that there's this break and that's the reason why they're at the end of the stories is because some of them contain spoilers because i just let him draw what he wanted and some of those (laughs) things would have revealed like the his drawing uh for corporation the first story in the collection is such an amazing drawing and i'd be lying if i said that that illustration isn't part of the reason that that's the first story I thought I want people to see this first. And that image should definitely be after the story. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Exactly. But I love it, man. It's just it, to me it's all art. It's all creativity and I just I want I want the complete package to look good. Like it's to it means a lot to me like that, that I can look at a shelf and feel like proud of what's back there. Yeah. You know, when I look at that, I think, man, that's that's cool. Not yeah. I'm I'm pr- I'm proud of 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 what stands there, and I I'm okay with that. Nice. I really like the notion of um, you kind of allowing him to choose some of the moments that got captured there, because it's mm-hmm. like if you're looking at you know the finished product of a book you wrote, it's it's cool to see. Oh, there's a visual representation of my favorite part of the story, but to go back and forth between that and here's a part of a story I wrote that meant something to another human being. Like that's cool to to me. That's to capture. That is very interesting. Yeah. And it was, it was a fun process. Like it felt like being in a band. Mm -hmm. It like, I can drum. I'm a decent drummer, but I'm not as good as a guy who's that's his primary instrument. And so when you're playing with a band, like, you play the song and then let your drummer, if he's good, <laughs> do his thing. You know, you don't want to dictate every hit, every beat. You're like, man, yeah, you're the drummer. Do your thing. And so then it, it, that creative pro it gets me excited about it. And it's just this cycle of excitement and creativity. And like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then he'd say, and then, and I wouldn't know exactly what he was going to come back with too. That was a fun part is he would read a story and I'd think, oh, I bet he's going to focus on this element. And then no, as an artist, he comes back with something totally different. <laughs> um, totally unrelated. I don't think I've ever actually asked you this ever. Uh, when did you start listening to the show? I don't listen to the show. <laughs> <laughs> I've never listened to the show. <laughs> Uh, first started listening in, gosh, I don't remember exactly. We've only been out for a week. Did you, did you guys ever interview Keelan Patrick Burke? No, no. No. Okay. So then the first episode I listened to. 
I think might have been a Josh Mallerman episode. Like I went through a period where I was hunting down episodes of him, uh, interviews of him, and just listening to all of them. Those are around this season one. Mm. That was a fun one. He did a lot of voices on that episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So, I was... Yeah. I, I, it's, it's been a while. Yeah. I've picked I, up a lot of episodes. I was just curious what like drew us in because I really can't gauge who's listening besides like it shows me on analytics what country but you in particular like we formed a friendship by you starting to listen to the show which i thought was cool we did that with erica robin too which is really neat um i mean it doesn't happen too often but when it does it's amazing so yeah that's really neat man yeah brennan want to jump into what are you reading sure tyler what are you currently reading right now i am smack dab in the middle of jeff vandermeer's authority how's that awesome (laughs) it's really good uh i i love i love vandermeer and (laughs) there's this weird thing i read annihilation in fact i was telling brennan this i read annihilation like the day that it came out and before it kind of blew up and became this thing Mm. and i just absolutely loved that book and because of that i got nervous to finish the other two in the trilogy it was almost like i was saving it for later like mm. i i don't want to it's it's a hard thing to explain so i'm i'm getting to authority now years later and i've read other <laughs> jeff vandermeer books <laughs> since uh you know i've read everything that he's come out with after that trilogy uh so i'm reading that and um i'm also i got uh the new lock and key uh the golden age in the mail yesterday so i'm reading that at the moment because it's no secret that i'm a big joe hill fan Mm. and speaking of art gabriel rodriguez the artist is just insane it's a beautiful beautiful book and there's there so there are only a couple stories that have ever moved me to tears three or four of them Two of them are by Joe Hill, and one of them is a comic called Open the Moon that's contained in that. And yeah, I read it. It was a one shot that he came out with years ago, and I read that thing and was not emotionally prepared for that. And then I didn't realize that it was contained within this volume. So I'm like reading (laughs) first, and I come to Open the Moon. I'm just like, oh, man, can I do this? Have to do it again. Yeah, it is a <laughs> remarkable, remarkable achievement in storytelling. It's just, it's beautiful, man. So those, those Sounds are the amazing. two things that I'm reading at the moment. Uh, Brennan, how about you? Uh, we will be speaking with Eric LaRocca tomorrow. So I am reading "You've Lost a Lot of Blood," uh, kind of the spiritual successor to "Things Have Gotten Worse," um, and it has. A little bit of, since we're talking about texture, it's, gosh, I don't even know how to explain it exactly, but it's it's a whole bunch of different stuff. And it's not even telling one story from multiple angles. It's telling multiple stories from multiple angles. Mm. There's, you know, recordings of phone calls that are partially dubbed over. There's poetry. There's a fiction novella written by one of the, you know, real life characters. Um, It's 
really creative. Uh, it's it's really interesting the way that Eric's put this together. And it's just, some, you're not reading this, you know, like yeah. you're not reading stuff like this is what I mean. Um, you you open it up and you, you haven't quite seen this clip show before. Um, and that's definitely something I think that Eric brings to the table is it, that that originality. And like you mentioned before, what a sweet person. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, yeah. what a just genuinely good human being. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also reading Those We Left Behind by Brandon Applegate, which oh, yeah. has a killer yeah. cover. Uh, I've been diving in this like just a sto- uh, one or two stories a week. It's taken me forever and I'm about halfway through, but got a little bit of the uh, illustration thing going on at nice. the front of each chapter. And I actually kind of dig the fact that they're just these really very simple illustrations, almost like a little totem to you know, yeah. remember each story by, um, but yeah, no, he's, he's got a, uh, he's got a nice voice. Uh, he's got story notes in there, which I always dig. Um, also included in burn the plans for Indeed. people who love that stuff. Um, and that's where I'm at. Patrick, how about you? So I just got this in the mail today. Ronald Kelly's uh dead eye. He said it was the last silver shamrock hardback. He has of it. So it's a collector's item. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking towards that. It's uh, the Saga of Dead-Eyed Book One Vampires, Zombies, and Mojo Man. Um, it's not super long, so I'm excited for that. I love Ron's stuff. <laughs> um, I'm also, I switched from paperback to audiobook for Daniel Cross's um, uh, Blood Sugar. And then that's I'm a prep book. Yeah. Um, I read later, or listened to it rather, then went and listened to Joyland and Colorado Kid. And then I also got from Hard Case Crime uh, on my Kindle today, five Decembers. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's on World War II, but uh, yeah, I really don't know much beyond it's a war focused. Uh, book. So we're prepping. I'm I'm prepping for uh, when we have Charles Arde. I really don't know if I'm saying his last name right. Uh, we're gonna have him on next month, and I'm really pumped about that. He's one of the founders of Hard Case Crime. Right on. Um, Philip Ficasi said he really loved the Five December's book. I've heard really I've heard good, good things. things about it. Yeah. yeah, it was up for some really uh, phenomenal awards this year. Um, Tyler, where can people follow you? Uh, my website is tylerjones.net. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at tjoneswriter. .net. What's the difference between that and org? I don't know. Well, I think, I think you mean calm. have to be an organization. Ah, uh, sorry. I meant calm. I got tired brain. Yeah. So apparently there is um, an athlete whose name is Tyler Jones. I can't remember if he's a football player or basketball player. Anyway like a professional athlete. And so somebody uh, has snagged, snagged up tylerjones.com and has held on to it for years, hoping that the athlete would purchase it from so, for some large amount of money. <laughs> nice. I did not expect that. Oh yeah. So it ends up being dot net in uh, enter softly. I'm about to ask Lisa Morton. Is that named after Lisa Morton from um, the writer Lisa Morton? <laughs> You know what? I uh maybe <laughs> maybe subconsciously. 
yeah. I, I wouldn't say no. Uh, yeah, there. <laughs> it's happened to me a couple times. Like I, I don't read comic books. I read Joe Hill graphic novels, and that's about it. That uh, I have named. This happened in workshop a couple times where I would name a character, read the story, and people would be like, "You named this like after a pretty famous comic book character. Like this is the the." alter ego of a marvel superhero like <laughs> tony stark or something and i'm like oh my gosh like i don't read but i've heard the name at some point you know and it's stuck in my i'm not saying i use tony stark but there was something like that i'm assuming yeah, like, you did they named the <laughs> bruce banner peter parker i'm like tony hawk these names have a nice ring and i don't even think yeah. about why they're familiar right. so maybe <laughs> <laughs> That was it. So, hey, you got any final thoughts? <laughs> final thoughts. Uh, no, just thank you guys so much for having me. I love this community that we have, this horror <laughs> community of horror readers and writers. It's um, it's a joy. I love getting to talk about this stuff. And so thank you for having me. And um, yeah, appreciate Brennan. it. Brennan. I, we appreciate your time, of course. It's been long overdue for a solo episode, and man, we could have we we could have talked for a lot longer. We'll have to have you back yeah. for a solo one. Unfortunately, you are going to have to fulfill like three more supporting roles before you earn one more uh, <laughs> solo episode. Done. I'm afraid. <laughs> hey, hopefully Count one me. day, hopefully one day we can get Joe Hill on, and we'll get you it's on like, for that one. It's like a punch card. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Free sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my final thoughts are pretty much always the same as Brian's. Appreciate you coming on. Appreciate Brennan and you listener. Appreciate you listening to this or watching it. Um, next episode is 147 with that guy we keep talking about. Things have gotten worse. Yeah, it's Eric LaRocca. So that is next. Stay tuned for that. And as always, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us. <laughs>